All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our time of study. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the living word, who was able to embody full eternal deity into humanity that we might catch a glimpse of your character, who you are, and your love for us. Father, we thank you for your written word that was revealed over 1,500 years down through the ages through the prophets and the apostles to give us your eternal truth, that which was resident in your thinking throughout all eternity, the mind of Christ, as Paul puts it. And that, as David says in the Psalms, it is your word that we are to hide in our heart that we might not sin against thee. It is your word that is more more glorious than anything and more valuable than gold, he says in Psalm 19. And so we value it, we treasure it, and we are reminded that when our Lord prayed in his prayer to you in John 17, he said, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, that we are sanctified, that is our spiritual growth, our being set apart to serve you is accomplished through your word, not through anything else. It is through God the Holy Spirit using your word in our life that we are transformed. And so there is no higher form of worship for us than to study your word, to understand it, and to see its implications and application for our lives and for our thinking. Now, Father, we pray that as we open the scriptures on for what is for many a very difficult, challenging teaching of your word, we pray that you might help us to think objectively about it and that for those for whom these are new thoughts, that they might relax and recognize it's just the beginning of a process. And for those who have thought about it deeply, that they might come to a more clear understanding of these truths. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin by having you open your Bibles to uh, Saul, I mean to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We are studying Ephesians. But we're going to be looking at Romans 8, 28 to 30 this morning, as well as Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, and with reference to another critical passage, which is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Putting these three passages together, because the key words that are mentioned in each one 
are difficult words. They're words that are often misunderstood, and I believe, as I've laid out in the previous weeks, words that are uh, mistranslated. And unfortunately, this happened very early in the history of Christianity and sort of set a tone and set an understanding of these passages that is somewhat skewed. And so we have to go back and understand these things. I have entitled this lesson Pre-Appointed for Service because that is what this word means, this word predestination that has been translated as predestination, as we'll see, means to be pre-appointed. And the context that we find it in, uh, at least the two that are important for this study in Ephesians uh, 1 and in Romans 8, uh, tell us that it's not a predetermination of who will be saved and who will not be saved, but it is a pre-appointment for those in the body of Christ that we are to grow spiritually and to serve him. It is a sanctification concept, that is, our spiritual growth after, after salvation. It is not a justification salvation issue. It is post-salvation, as we shall see. Now, let me just remind you a little bit about the context of what we're studying in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, is the beginning of a very lengthy sentence by the Apostle Paul that goes down to verse 14, and that it is a, a, a prayer of thanksgiving. It is given by Paul, and it focuses on first the Father, then the Son, and then God the Holy Spirit. Now, just as a matter of basic Bible study, when we are looking especially at any epistle, one of the things that we should remember is that at the beginning of an epistle, like any good literature, we're going to get a clue as to what that epistle is going to be about. There will be an introduction that will orient us to the content of the epistle. In Ephesians, that introduction comes in the, in the form of this opening statement of blessing that, that uh, Paul states from verse 3 down to verse 14. It therefore sets a focus for us, and that focus is not going to be on individual salvation. It's not answering the question of how do we get to heaven when we die. It's not oriented to that. It is oriented more to now that we are saved, what should we do? And its focus is on our spiritual growth and our service to God. It is about being part of this new entity that came into existence on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33 called the church. It's referred to as the body of Christ, and the focal point throughout Ephesians is on the church, the body of Christ. It is this corporate entity and who we are and, and what our identity is in the, in the first part of this, this epistle in chapters one through three. That is the, that is the, the focal point. And then in the second section from chapter three down through about six, nine, the focus is on the believer's walk. The believer's walk is based on an understanding 
of what we have as a body of believers in Christ. Paul uses the term our riches in Christ. So we have a focus on our the wealth that we have because of our uh, of this this corporate entity called the church. Those who are in Christ all have this this wealth. And because of this wealth, it is to inform and direct our walk. That is our daily life. But that daily life involves a warfare also, and that's the focus we get come to in Ephesians 6, 10, and following is the spiritual warfare that often envelops the believer's life. So we're in this first section describing the wealth that we have, and it begins with an incredible focus on our appointment, the appointment that God has for us as believers in Christ because of our, our position in him. And it is translated, as I pointed out, often with words that, and we'll see a little bit more of that this morning as we study words that are hard to understand, words that have often been uh, distorted in ways that have a lot to do with determinism and fatalism rather than uh, Christianity. And we've seen that historically there's been these conflicts, whether it's uh, within the uh, Roman Catholic Church, you had uh, initially uh, Augustine versus Pelagius. Later on, there was the debates between Banez and Molina and Suarez. And in the in Christianity, the development of the Calvinist and Arminian controversies. And so what I am proposing here, it's not unique to me, but uh, an understanding that there is some truth in some of these systems biblically, but often a theological construct was developed by uh, initially by Augustine or Augustine in the uh, 400s, early 5th century, and that this set a direction in the church that had more to do with fatalism than not. Paul begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Over 20 times in this epistle, there's a reference to being in him, in the beloved, in Christ. It's a corporate term, those who are in him. We are in him when immediately when we believe in Christ. When we trust in him, we are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, and we are in him. And because of our position in Christ, we have these incredible blessings. Just as, so there's a comparison here, just as he chose us, and we spent last time talking about this, I'll review that in just a minute, he chose us, that is, he selected us on the basis of a quality he saw in us. That quality is the perfect righteousness we received when we trusted in Christ. Just as he chose us in him, notice it is us in him. It does not say just as he chose us to be in him, but he chose us in him. That is a corporate reference, not an individual reference. It's not talking about an individual selection to an eternal destiny in heaven. It is talking about 
God's plan and purpose for us as believers in Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is his plan from eternity past, that we should be holy and without blame. This is related to spiritual growth. It is not related to getting saved and determining our eternal destiny. That once we're saved, our purpose is to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Peter puts it, we are to be holy as he is holy. That does not precede justification. That comes after justification. Then that is before him in love. And here we have a participle of means. It's not translated clearly. It should be that that selection is by means of this word predestination that just scares people. So it's not an accurate translation. It should be translated just as he appointed us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about an illustration because I know that this is difficult for folks. Uh, many of you may have never really thought much about these concepts. You've heard a little bit about Calvinism, Arminianism. Uh, maybe you were exposed at this point or another point to concepts uh, related to predestination or election, and you've heard a, a, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And some people, you, if you haven't heard anything, then over the past three or four uh, lessons, then you may have started off getting a little bit confused. And then as time went by, maybe there was a little clarity. I got some positive comments after uh, last week from several different people that while well, some things were coming into focus and you were beginning to understand what was going on. And I liken a church many times, you've heard me say this, that folks, this is a one-room schoolhouse. Some of you are in spiritual diapers. Some of you are in spiritual high school. Some of you have thought about this, and you have come to a fairly solid understanding. Others of you are just in a fog, and that's okay. You're, you're young. If you're a parent, you've had the experience of figuring out how you can really teach and develop uh, your children how you can inculcate into them a variety of skills, whether they are physical skills, teaching them how to throw and catch a ball, how to kick a ball, how to uh, do physical things, to doing mental things, developing their uh, intellectual prowess, teaching them how to think, how to reason, how to work through problem solving, how to uh, engage a situation and say, well, how am I going to solve this, this particular situation? One of the many tools that are available to us is a jigsaw puzzle. And you may initially start off with something fairly simple. I probably had some jigsaw puzzles before this, but one of the earliest ones I remember was one that had 50 pieces. Guess what they were? The 50 states in the Union. And so it was pretty easy to put that that together. Now, that fit a certain pattern, which was the shape of the United States of America. But most jigsaw puzzles come in the shape of either a, an oval, a circle, or most often they're in the shape of a, of a square or a rectangle. And one of the things you learn pretty early on is when you start to attack this pile of details called pieces of the puzzle, that the first thing you have to do is have a strategy 
And that strategy is to find the corner pieces and to find and isolate all the pieces that have a straight edge. And once you do that, you start put, you figure out which ones match in color and then you figure out which ones can fit together and you begin to lay out your borders. And once you create your borders, then you're able to start filling out the picture. And so it's a learning process. Now I want you to think about what would happen. Let's say you are in a home and you have four or five uh, children and you're a parent and you are teaching them. You have different age groups there and you bring home a puzzle that has a thousand pieces and you dump it out on the dining room table or on a card table of some sort to be solved by the kids, and you've got a couple of, of, of older kids, 14, 15, 16, and they can sit down. They're not too intimidated. It's a bit of a challenge for them, and they start working it. But those younger kids that are five, six, seven or so, they're a little bit intimidated, but they're learning from the older ones. They also realize that they may look at it and go, I don't really want to do that. And that's fine because they're just not there yet. And that's the way some Christians are with some doctrines. They're just not there yet. And when it's to shift the metaphor a little bit, when you've got a a nice steak and your teeth haven't come in yet, then that's not for you. You need to stick with the baby food. But there are also folks in the congregation for whom they need a good, solid, uh, solid meal. And so as a pastor, I'm feeding both. So... I was awake at 1.30 in the morning this morning. I woke up, and lying there, I got to thinking about what we have in talking about this. I pointed out that there's four concepts. There's three words that are, are, that are used in Ephesians 1 that are important, and one word that is in the background that is not used here, but it is used in the other two passages that help us to understand this whole concept that we refer to as election and predestination. The four words begin with the one on the left. It is foreknowledge, then the word choose, the word predestined, and then his will. The word foreknowledge is not found in this passage, but it is found in Romans 8, 28 to 30, and in 1 Peter chapter 2, which are important passages because they give us a certain order of events. And that is that foreknowledge precedes choosing. Whatever, we, however we're going to assign a meaning to these concepts, foreknowledge comes first and then, uh, then choosing. And then we have the word predestination and the word his will. So if we look at Romans 8, <clears throat> 828 through 30, let me read that. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, we might stop there and say, well, who are these who love God who are the called according to his purpose? And that's the focal point of the next two verses. For whom he foreknew. And so Paul's going to give us a, a series of, of words here. And that's like these different words in a jigsaw puzzle. Now, I talked about throwing a thousand pieces out there on the table and you feel a little intimidated, a little overwhelmed. Well, that's how a lot of Christians feel as soon as you throw out words like election, predestination, uh, the sovereignty of God, free will of man. These terms, they immediately feel a little overwhelmed by all of the detail. And I can, I can understand this. I come to this with about 40, 
plus almost 50 years of study of, of this particular issue. I remember first becoming aware of it. Uh, probably when around nine, the time I graduated from college, I had a vague understanding probably of what had been taught at the church where I grew up. And I remember going and hearing a pastor who is a, has been a friend and colleague for 50 years, but at the time I, he, I showed up and he's teaching on Romans 8, 29 and 30. And I sat, it was in the church, I was in the balcony, I was in the back, and I heard him explaining the passage, and I thought, yeah, I don't agree with this. And I was, I quietly slipped out the back door after about 15 minutes. I really misunderstood what he said because what he was teaching was basically what, what I'm teaching. Okay, but, but because of, uh, uh, lack of really understanding a lot of different things biblically and theologically, I misconstrued what it was that he was saying. I've often uh, teased him about being that hyper-Calvinist that I thought he was. And he is one of the most prominent free grace and has been one of the most prominent free grace pastors in um, in Houston throughout these years. So... You can feel a little overwhelmed by some of these things. It was as that time also I bought a book that I still have on my shelf. Very few people know of it today, but it was foundational in my understanding. And then I read Lewis Berry Chafer. I had always heard from the pastor under whom I grew up that Lewis Berry Chafer was like the benchmark of theological accuracy. And so when I read his volume on soteriology, on salvation, I realized that his view on election and predestination was not the view that I had grown up under, and that, in fact, he was pretty Calvinistic. And that surprises a lot of folks around here sometimes. He was a, what I would call a traditional modified four-point Calvinist. He had a free grace gospel. He didn't believe in a lordship perseverance idea, but he definitely was a... Uh, what some have called a three-and-a-half-point Calvinist. But at that point, I became pretty convinced because this was Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Seminary and uh, the author of this seven, uh, eight-volume work on theology, that he must be right. And he quoted a lot of other theologians to back himself up, and so I shifted to that position. Later, while I was in seminary, I heard pretty much the same thing. And then afterwards, as I got into the issues that were bubbling to the surface at that time in the early 80s over lordship salvation and free grace gospel, trying to work my way through those uh, those issues, the Lord brought a number of different pastors into my life to help me think through things, people... Um, that that were were pretty clear on this this particular topic. Not all were, and I began to read and study, and that pretty much characterized the last thirty thirty or forty years. And one of the things that I've realized as we go through this is the importance in of context and everything, and how often what we find is theologians start with a theology, and then they read it into a text. We always have to start from the bottom up and understand what the text says. And so when we get into verse 29, we read, um, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn of many brethren. 
Now, what's the purpose of predestined there? We'll just use that word because that's the common translation. We'll revise that a little later on. But what's the goal? It doesn't say for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to eternal life. It doesn't say for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to eternal condemnation. He doesn't say for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to heaven. It says to be conformed to the image of his son. Now that, just trust me for now, we won't go into all the details, that is a spiritual life issue. That's not a justification issue. That is, when, and when we grow and mature in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is in the process of transforming us into his character. That's what it means into the image of Christ. We are to be like him in character. God the Holy Spirit is producing in us the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, self-control against which there is no law. That's the character of Christ. This is, this is spiritual life, not getting spiritual life. This is what you do after your salvation. So these terms relate to producing something in us the image of Christ. These words define the boundary, the frame of that jigsaw puzzle, but the image that's in that jigsaw puzzle is the character of Christ. That's what we're being conformed to. This is the same thing that Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 1 because we are in him. He's talking about all of the blessings uh, that we have in him. Now, last time, or first of all, we began by looking at the word foreknowledge, a word that's not used in Ephesians chapter 1, but it is used in Romans 8, uh, 29, and is used in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 2. And in both places, it comes first before anything else. And it doesn't mean that God has determined what he knows. That is the typical Calvinist definition. It means, and I demonstrated this, that it means what God knew beforehand. It means what God knew ahead of time. That is how the word is normally used in non-theologically distinct passages. God, in his omniscience, has always known all the knowable. He has always known everything that could happen, everything that should happen, everything that might have happened, and everything that will happen. He has always known this. He never increases in his knowledge. He never decreases in his knowledge. This has been his knowledge for all of eternity, and none of us can understand that. His knowledge is not our knowledge. And so according to these passages, that knowledge ahead of time is what is at the foundation of these other steps. Okay, now Calvinism comes in and says, no, 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 because if he takes into account anything that he knows ahead of time, then the ultimate cause of your salvation is not grace, it's you. It's some decision you made, some work you did, and so you've, you, you have taken this away from the glory of God. And they ignore uh, in these two clear passages that foreknowledge comes first. And then we looked at the idea of choosing. What does that mean? And we looked at the verb and we looked at the noun. And the noun has this idea of it's translated elect or chosen. But as I pointed out in the verb, it's selecting the best that's the best qualified for a mission. 
And I pointed out that as you examine a number of passages, it should be translated with this, this idea that this is brought out by several lexicographers, that one thing that no matter what's going on in the passage, there's always something in the object of the choice that qualifies them for the mission. Now, that's not works. And then we went to Matthew uh, chapter 20 last time. We'll come back to that in just a minute. So that the idea is of selecting something that is choice. And I pointed out what I always refer to as the doctrine of the magnum bar is that when I was in Israel some years ago and working through my understanding of modern Hebrew, I saw on my favorite magnum bar that it was, uh, that it had this word describing the flavor down here, shekadim becharim, and that the word bachar is a word for select. Bachar is the word that is often translated elect, but it means choice. And it's translated this a number of different ways. Now, just to show how God works to take things I'm studying on one night to fit with something else, we've been studying on covenants on Tuesday night in the Davidic Covenant, and one of the classic articles to understand covenants was written by a Hebrew scholar Moshe Weinfeld in a um, in, in a journal back in 1970, and I've been going back and rereading things that I, for, I, I, I forgot. They shaped my thinking, and I forgot the specifics a long time ago, so I've been reviewing these things. And in the middle of this article discussing the various types of ancient Near Eastern covenants, he talks about the fact that in, um, in one of the covenants, it is related to adoption. This helps us understand God is adopting Israel as his firstborn in the Old Testament. Israel was choice. Israel was a corporate selection that it is through Israel that God was going to bless the world. And as he is talking about this, he also brings into this idea of adoption that among all of the children, the father could choose which one would be the primary heir or what we call the firstborn. And in that statement, he says, indeed the phrase, bachor atnaho, now that word bachor, that's the same word that I just talked about that means select, the choice one, okay? He says, indeed this phrase means I will appoint him or make him firstborn. Now, didn't I tell you just last week that the essence of this word for uh, selection, for choosing, is to appoint? Is to, and that's exactly what he says here in reference to the Hebrew word, bachar, which is the foundation for our understanding of the of, of what is meant by Paul in the New Testament when he uses that, that particular word group. So that just confirmed that we're on the right track here in the way we're understanding uh, this particular concept. I pointed out that in Gordon Olson's book, he says the key idea here, both the Hebrew terms and Septuagint, is in God selecting or setting apart qualified people to fulfill some commission or office. Now, they didn't get the qualification by works. They got the qualification, as we saw, by believing God, and it's accounted to him as righteousness. They received the righteousness of God, and that qualifies them for God's use to serve God. 
the theological word book of the Old Testament, it states in all of these cases, after evaluating all of them, serviceability rather than simple arbitrariness is at the heart of the choosing. And then we have, I pointed out that when Sarah died, Abraham goes to the uh, Hittites, the sons of Heth that are living in Hebron. He wants to buy a piece of land, and they're going to give him the choicest of our burial places. See, that's that same word. It's the choices. It's the most excellent. It's not the idea of select one and ignore the others. It's you get the choicest, the best of what we have. It meets a qualification. We went through Matthew 22, 1 through 14 last time, which is when Jesus tells this parable about inviting um, uh, those to initially one group to come to the wedding feast of his son. This pictures God's invitation to the Jewish people. They rejected that. They said they would not come. They would not respond to it. Then he goes to, then he opens the invitation to all. Now nowhere in that whole parable does anybody choose anything other than the recipients of the invitation. Some choose to re- to come, some choose not to come. But at the end, it's translated usually, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, I retranslated it for the slide because it doesn't say many are chosen because nobody is chosen by the Father to come to the banquet. What we see is few are choice. What makes them choice is that they have on the wedding, the right wedding garments, which pictures the imputation of Christ's righteousness, which, as I pointed out from Isaiah 61.10, that he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Okay, so that gets us review. Now we get to this whole concept of what is predestination. Predestination is based on this word group. The first two words are the key words that are usually translated predestination, praharidzo. Praharidzo means to, it's usually translated to decide something beforehand or to appoint something beforehand. But this is how the instant detail summary in the accordance program briefly summarizes it, to decide beforehand not to decide somebody's destiny beforehand. That's not the core meaning of the word. It just means to decide something ahead of time. That's the pra, the P-R-O. Praharizo in the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology means to decide upon beforehand, and then they also include predestined. But it's this idea to decide something ahead of time. The word is based on the root harizo, which means to determine or appoint something. That's the key idea. If it's praharizo, if you're appointing it ahead of time, then it's a pre-appointment. And it has the idea of separation because the word was often used in reference to establishing real estate boundaries. But this is not the idea that you get in most dictionary definitions. So I, I, I put four up here for you. Predestination in the Erdman's Bible Dictionary means the divine determination of human beings to eternal salvation or eternal damnation. In the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, predestination means the divine decree according to which certain persons are infallibly guided to eternal salvation. It's from the Latin predestinare. It's in the Vulgate. It was Jerome who translated it that way, 
in the 5th century, and that sets the stage. Nobody prior to Jerome took it that way. No one took it as predestination. He's influenced by Augustine or Augustine, and this is how uh, he translated it. Uh, in another dictionary, it says it's the divine and unalterable determination of the salvation or damnation of human beings even before they are are created. And this is in Nelson's New Christian Dictionary. And then I found it interesting that in the Lexham Dictionary, that's the Logos publication, it says God's foreordination of persons to a particular end. See, they didn't say what the end was. They said it's, and they're, they're getting a lot closer. Uh, most commonly to a particular eternal destiny and less commonly to a particular vocation or a particular task. That's what we're looking at here. It is God appointing church-age believers to a particular task. That is to be conformed to the image of Christ. To live a holy and blameless life is what Paul, the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 1. The New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology says that the compound proharizo is only used from the 4th century B.C. onwards. There's only like five or six instances of the word used before the New Testament period. It's an extremely rare word, which means that you have to be very cautious how you're going to define it and what your methods are. Now, Demosthenes lived in the... uh, Fourth uh, century BC, and w- this is what he says. It's a court case, and he's talking about this inheritance of property that he's about to be defrauded of, and he's taking this guy um, uh, called um, Onator. He's taking him to court, and he says it's to prove these statements of mine are true that he even now declares that the land is mortgaged for a talent that was a monetary amount but that he laid claim, that's proharizo. He laid claim. Does that have anything to do with eternal, you know, determining somebody's eternal destiny? He laid claim to 2,000 drachmas more on the house. Now, in the Liddell Scott Dictionary of Classical Greek, which I quote at the bottom, it says, he had the house marked with stones. That's the literal Meaning, but you would mark off property boundaries. You would l- create that that limitation with boundary stones, and so that's what he's doing. He's laying claim to a piece of property. Now it's true that God lays claim to us, and in fact, there is one classic scholar who, tra- on the basis of that, translated Romans eight twenty nine. Long ere this, he knew our hearts. See, that's foreknowledge beforehand. Long before this, he knew our hearts. Long ere this, he claimed us as a man claims property. Now, that's a lot closer to the idea of the original. It's not an idea of determining our eternal destiny, whether we're going to be saved or damned. It's the idea of God is placing a claim on us. He's appointing us to a particular task. So... It has this idea of being appointed to something, to determining, not in the sense of philosophical determinism, 
But just as you would determine the boundaries of a piece of property or determine the borders of a jigsaw puzzle, there is a determination of what the end result should be. It's an appointment to that mission and that task. And so it has the original sense of setting bounds and in that sense determining uh, something. It's translated in Acts 17.26. This is a great passage. It has great political application today in terms of nationalism and a lot of discussion on that. That Paul said, and God has made from one blood every nation. That means we're all equal. That is, That stands against every form of racism. Uh, God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined, that's our word, uh, that's a similar word, he's determined, that is, he has established their pre-appointed, that is, their, that's praharizo, their pre-appointed times. He determines when nations rise and fall and the boundaries of their dwellings. God sets the boundaries of the nations. Nations are to have borders. God established those borders, and that what, that's what defines and keeps one nation from being confused with another nation. Acts 10.42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained. That's the word. It's not predestined, although a couple of translations stick with that, but most do not. It was ordained, which means that something is simply appointed to a task. It was appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. That's Jesus Christ is appointed. He is not predestined. He is appointed to a task. Acts 17.31 in the NET translation even says uh, fixed because he is appointed. That is, he fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. That's praharizo. He appointed He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. It has to do with appointing somebody to a particular task. So in Ephesians 1.5, and I'm using these other translations because they are less bound by just following a traditional rut. In the New Living Translation, Ephesians 1.5 says, His unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family. So it recognizes that this idea of praharizo is his unchanging plan for us. It's a corporate idea. And, and this is a translation from a Dutch uh, translation. Uh, in him we too were made his heritage as foreordained according to his purpose. Foreordained is not predestined, also some people think they do. The word ordained simply means to set somebody apart for a task. When you are entering into ministry, the word that is used is ordination. And ordination means you're setting someone apart to a task. It is not predestination. I was not predestined when I uh, stood up in front of Tomball Bible Church and was ordained to the gospel ministry. I was uh, set apart for the gospel ministry. That's what it means. So ordain is a good word. But again, it's a word that isn't the most user-friendly in our culture today. So we can look at Romans 8.29, and we read, For whom God knew beforehand, we'll uh, paraphrase it that way, it's a good translation, For whom God knew beforehand, he also 
set apart or appointed beforehand to be conformed to the image of his son. It's not predestined them to heaven or predestined them to the lake of fire. And then it would be translated that way in Romans 8.30, for whom he uh, appointed beforehand, them he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified. This is his overall plan. Uh, the basic, the basic Bible in English translation puts it this way. Because those of whom he had knowledge before they came into existence were marked out by him to be made like his son. That's a really good basic translation. It's, it's not this idea of fatalistic determinism that some are determined to be saved by God in eternity past and others are chosen to, for damnation. They're marked out. They're appointed for that. I would paraphrase it this way. We know that he brings together for good all things, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For God knew his own before creation and also ordained that they should be spiritually shaped in the character of his son, that he might be the firstborn among a large family of brothers, That relates to what we're going to get to next week in terms of adoption. And it is these so appointed beforehand whom he has called. Gordon Olson translates it. I'll just go to the underlined portion. Just as before the foundation of the world, he appointed us through our union with him to be holy and blameless in his sight in love by designating or laying claim to us to become his own adopted sons through Jesus the Messiah. I paraphrase it. I think it's a little more clear that we would translate Ephesians 1.3 that before him in love by appointing us beforehand to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself. See, it is... And when it says, according to the good pleasure of his will, we'll talk about that next time. This is his plan. It doesn't mean he's arbitrarily picking who will be saved and who will not be saved. Now, what's the importance of all of this? The importance of this is is just tremendous. It elevates our whole conception of who we are. It should radically transform your identity. When you look in the mirror, what you should see is a person who is in Christ, who has been given a mission because you're on that team. And that mission is to be conformed to his image so that you can fulfill the appointment criteria, which is to serve God. And to do that, first you have to grow to spiritual maturity. First you have to grow by the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our mission as believers. It's not just to enjoy the fact that we are confident that we will spend eternity in heaven because we trusted in Christ as Savior, but because once we trusted Christ as Savior, we were instantly put into the body of Christ, and we who are in the body of Christ on that team have been given a mission. We have been appointed for a purpose, and that is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is to grow to spiritual maturity. Spiritual life really begins when you get and I get to maturity, just as when you were 8, 10, 14 years old, you kept saying, I can't wait till I'm an adult. Why? Because you knew that the real full enjoyment of life came for adult, in adulthood, not in being in diapers. 
But most Christians are satisfied to be in diapers and never reach spiritual adulthood so that they can actually enjoy the blessings that God gave them. Because that involves a lot of thinking, it involves a lot of studying, and it involves a lot of, a lot of spiritual growth. But once you get there, that's when we really maximize all that God has given us in terms of all these spiritual blessings that are ours. It's because God established a plan in eternity past for the church age that those who were in Christ would be given a glorious set of assets and privileges and responsibilities. But to activate that, we would have to grow to spiritual maturity. We would have to be conformed to his son. And part of that is in spiritual growth is learning to live a life that no longer is characterized by the world and the licentiousness of the world, but is characterized by living a life that is holy. That means set apart to God. It doesn't mean being morally perfect. It means being set apart to God and, and blameless. And that doesn't mean being morally perfect either because we can't, as long as we have a sin nature, we just still struggle with it. We have to confess sin and we have to keep moving forward and learning his word. That's the challenge for us. That's what all of this is all about. It's a glorious vision. We'll come back and continue to talk about this next time because once we understand this concept of adoption, it ties it into inheritance and our future rewards, and it, it's just an explosive concept that radically revises our understanding of who we are as church-age believers. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, thank you for this opportunity today to come together to reflect upon the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in our communion service, to be reminded that, that he was qualified to go to the cross. He died on our behalf. And that by believing in him, that's it. It just involves belief, trusting in him, believing he died for our sins. We have eternal life. But that with that life comes such a position in Jesus that we can even, can't even fully comprehend. We are in him. We have riches in Christ. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. And with that comes a, comes a goal to grow into the image and likeness of Christ by growing growing in his grace and knowledge. Father, we pray that if there's those here listening, if they've never trusted Christ, if they're unsure of their salvation, that they wouldn't be confused by these things that we've taught, but they might clearly understand that for them the issue is entering into Christ. The issue is receiving eternal life. The issue is moving from death to life. And that comes only by trusting in Jesus. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us each as we work through and rethink what we have learned today, that you would strengthen us, encourage us by this, and that we might be challenged to press on to spiritual maturity, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.